0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: We just had the best B-roll and talked so much shit about so many famous people. We're not going to record any <laughs> yeah, of it. Yeah, we didn't
2: record any of it cuz <laughs> You're, oh, You're welcome. You're welcome.
0: We are welcome. We are so welcome. So
1: many careers saved possibly <laughs> including our own. But not limited to. <laughs> Matt, um, we're all
2: in debt to Matt Kahn for not running the, the record during that last segment. So,
0: so true. You know, this is the danger of drinking scotch while yeah, you record. Yeah, near a microphone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Flying in the Quiet Skies edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Washington Post. Do you guys remember Flying to Friendly Skies? Remember, yes. when that, remember when they could say that with a straight face? They said That was it. before they started beating their customers
0: <laughs> and killing their dogs. <laughs> Dragging them bodily off the plane. Yeah. Those oh, the good old days God. when you there was enough armrest for two people. Uh,
1: I'm actually getting ready to fly, and I, I don't dread it as much anymore, but basically now you just pay for all the extras to get what used to be called a bad seat.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Although I also remember that back in the um, good old days, everybody in the back of the plane was smoking the entire flight, mm-hmm. and to get to the restroom, you had to pass through this cloud of cigarette smoke. Yeah. So Some things have gotten better.
2: The other thing that's gotten better about airplanes is that they don't crash anymore.
1: Not often. Not, <laughs> not very
2: often. Not
0: as often as cars. Have we
1: talked about my airplane crash fetish is the wrong way to put it, but my weird obsession with airplane crashes?
0: Why no, Shane? We haven't.
1: <sighs> Maybe a whole other This problem. week like on you're the episode. Into
0: uh-uh. <laughs> this week on mean? Rational Studies. No, whatever. Shane's
1: weird obsession I know, with I, airplane I, I crashes think, I think it comes from an anxiety of being afraid that I will be killed in an airplane crash but I know a lot about a number of famous airplane crashes
0: did someone show you Airport 77 when you were I, too young I did see
1: as a kid I think that, that and Jaws yeah. were probably movies I saw when I was too young
3: <laughs> why does Shane hates seafood
1: <laughs> enough about me
3: I'm sure you'll die in a much more interesting way <laughs> by than God I hope crash.
1: so <laughs> ideally not on a podcast I think you'll
3: beat yourself to death at a DuPont hotel room <laughs>
1: It does happen, just and, and not just sometimes. to Russians. Right across the street right from here. <laughs> just saying, it's a very dangerous hotel. I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my friend Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman-Wittes. Hi, everybody. Hey Hi, Shane. Uh, We're we'll not be beating ourselves today, thank God. Uh, but this week on the podcast, the National Security Council has a very brief meeting on election security. A quiet meeting. The TSA has been quietly tracking and tra- air travelers for years, and President Trump says he's willing to meet with Iran's president without conditions. So nice. Just call me. We'll have a meeting. Work yeah. it out. You in town? Come by. Step by the White House. Sure. <laughs>
2: Neither so of
0: them
1: easy.
2: drinks. Yeah, it's so
0: easy for them to get into the <laughs> <For> U.S. <drinks. laughs> to come visit the White House.
1: <laughs> we'll watch soccer together. Um, let's start with the uh, this week uh, the NSC principles Committee meeting Principles committee. Wait, yeah, before math. we before Why? we go
2: on a little bit, don't you think just throughout this episode, we should periodically burst out, "Get me a coke."
1: <laughs> can we talk okay before we let's talk about the right, michael let's cohen let's talk about the michael cohen recording because, for just a second that's a good hang idea. on wait get me a coke get me a coke uh, what yeah no. all right we're gonna what we're gonna, topic went yeah this one the other thing yeah the charleston thing yeah right, can i get a coke please yeah. it was <laughs> listening to that tape there are at least four separate conversations occurring at once between michael cohen and donald trump
2: which is the way Trump talks Always all the time. Sounds, no that's
1: right? exactly right. And people Maybe who've done he's interviews with him the mm-hmm. just
0: the ADD president.
3: I'm just going to start recording all of you all the time because it does seem like it comes in handy <laughs> if you <laughs> end up being indicted for something to have incriminating tape recordings. Yeah. yeah.
1: It is pretty yeah. astonishing that you can keep that many things in your head. And I
0: think if you record everybody all the not. time then you know one time out of 50 or 100 there'll be something really juicy.
1: Okay,
2: so but here's the question. So if we recorded each other all the time, what would be the thing that would leap out at the listener? Like, can I have a Coke? You know, that's oh. like this like weird tick mm. that we... Can I have
3: nothing weird or abnormal about any of us? I'm we pretty are, filthy. That's true.
0: Are we can recording confirm. a podcast this week?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Just asking.
1: My favorite part of it besides the give me a Coke was the one where Michael Cohen says... I need to open an account (laughs) to get that information (laughs) about our friend David. David. It's almost like you can imagine him with like the microphone on the flower, being like, (laughs) "I need you to stand a little closer and say that thing that I told you about." (laughs) Yeah, 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 that one. Cash check. Give me Coke. All right, let's talk. Let's talk about another meeting with Donald Trump that probably wasn't (laughs) recorded uh, since he doesn't like having people present for those. Uh, The National Security Council Principles Committee met this week uh, to discuss election security uh, ahead of the midterms. Um, This was the first time that I think that the entire Principals Committee has been convened. Um, What we know about it so far, uh, in large part thanks to some great reporting by my colleagues in The Post this week, Um, it lasted about – 20 minutes? Less than an hour? Half an hour. Half an hour? So roughly around there. Uh, Very short. Um, There's clearly no whole of government plan to deal with midterm election security. There was no policy that was announced out of this. Uh, At the same time, top US officials have said they do see Russian propaganda and disinformation campaigns ramping up. At least three congressional candidates have been targeted by Russian hackers. And now today, Facebook has announced it's taking down various fake news pages that have been set up ahead of the elections, um, I find myself looking at the government response or the lack of response to what was clearly a seismic event and a major national security uh, vulnerability that was exposed and thinking, is this not unlike if after 9-11, George W. Bush had just said, eh, what about Al-Qaeda? We don't need a Homeland Security Department. Nah, 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 nah. We don't need to do all these kind of things, you know, do too much. It, it, am I overreading that, Ben? I mean, to think that this—the lack of any kind of coordinated approach—is uh, not only stunning but not what you expect out of the national security bureaucracy.
2: So I, I am tempted to respond with a joke, um, but I actually want to say that I think your analogy is quite precise, and it's precise in a way that that I think is worth elaborating a little bit. So first of all, you know, the Bush administration in the fall of 2001 followed a period of its own complacency, extreme complacency over the summer and spring, uh, pre-9-11, pre-September. And also a period of the Obama administrations, uh, the the, the Clinton administrations, failure to take it as seriously as, in retrospect, I think a lot of people would have wanted, including Bill Clinton, I'm sure. And that has a direct analog to the current situation, where I think we're in this period where a lot of people are saying, hey, the Obama administration really didn't do enough in this. And then this new administration comes in, and yeah, they actually uh, have their own complacency or it's maybe worse than complacency uh, and so i think the analogy is almost as though after 9-11 realizing that the clinton administration had you know not done everything it could and that it had kind of dropped the ball up until then bush kind of said eh. <laughs> al-qaeda schmal schmeida right and we would regard that as, for anybody old enough to remember that period, unthinkable. And the fact that it is not merely unthinkable, but playing out before our eyes while ongoing operations are happening is mind boggling.
3: Yeah, look, I, I think it's—I think that's right. Um, you know, in some ways, it's—it's it's even worse. So we have all of these indicators of just the basic lack of seriousness, or the fact that the White House just isn't taking this problem seriously. You know, we have this thirty-minute uh, NSC meeting—not long enough to have a serious conversation about this stuff. Um, you know, the general denials by Donald Trump, the fact that he didn't raise it with Putin. Um, you know, there's also sort of the, the structural stuff. So John Bolton getting rid of uh, of Rob Joyce, sending him back to NSA, firing. Tom Bossert, putting sort of the cybersecurity portfolio in his deputy, uh, underneath his deputy in a way that sort of treats it as though it's a secondary issue. It's not something that requires sort of a specific expertise of any sort. So even Bolton himself appears to be picking up the cues that this isn't something we really want to take seriously. At the same time, the evidence that this is a really persistent threat is sort of blaring, right? So I think it was Dan Coats who testified on the Hill maybe two weeks ago at this point saying, "Um, the red lights are blinking just like... Like they were before 9-11.
1: Using that precise metaphor.
3: Exactly. So you have Trump's own (laughs) intelligence officials sort of sounding the alarm. You have these reports from Facebook, reports from Twitter. Claire McCaskill is being targeted. Jean Shaheen has now said that she's been targeted. Right. So um, we're seeing a, a ramping up of the level of sophistication and brazenness. And then this all plays out against the background of This is a really, really hard problem, even if the administration totally got it, totally understood that this was a critical threat to democracy. The question of what does a sensible, effective deterrence policy look like? That's that's hard enough. And so it's sort of like we aren't even getting to that substantive issue or that substantive question of, OK, if you decided this was unacceptable, if you decided you wanted to prevent it, how would we even go about doing that? Instead, like we're trying to convince only one person, the one person that doesn't appear to get this, that this actually is a problem in the first place.
2: When Dan Coates goes to Aspen and says the lights are blinking red like they were before nine eleven. That is a quote from the 9-11 Commission report. The lights are blinking red. I mean, he is he is invoking a very specific thing and then saying, and by the way, I'm invoking that thing. Right.
0: Well, right. And I actually think that that's an interesting deliberative choice on his part, but it also gets to one reason why we're not seeing a more robust and coherent response from the federal government on this, we had a 9-11 commission. Mm. And we had a 9-11 commission not because the 9-11 attacks were politicized or because one party benefited from them over the other. We had a 9-11 commission because it was such a shocking, such a significant, such a novel challenge that both parties agreed It was important to understand why it had not been prevented and how to prevent things like it in the future. And the 9-11 Commission report, the the narrative, the authoritative narrative that it presented, but more than that, the specific recommendations that it made about prevention and policy, um, that put, you know, that created ballast for the policy changes that were made both legislatively and in the executive branch After the attacks and after the report was released. And so, you know, I think one reason we're yes, one reason we're not seeing a more robust and serious response by the federal government is because the president of the United States is convinced that acknowledging the seriousness of this threat in the future somehow undermines the legitimacy of his election in the past, which is itself a bizarre leap of logic, but whatever. Um, But the other reason is because it is so politicized, partly because of the stance he's taken, that neither Democrats nor Republicans can galvanize the policy change necessary. And because it's a hard problem, because elections are administered at the state and county level, you need a federal government to bring everybody together and get joint action uh, on the problem. Um, And and so I, you know, I remember having conversations with all of you in the immediate aftermath of the election about whether or not there should be a bipartisan commission. I I still wish that had happened. Um, And today, as we look ahead to the 2018 elections and the 2020 elections, and we know that the Russians are determined to continue making us uncertain about our own polity and about the the workings of our own democratic process, I wish more and more and more that we had done it. And I, you know, I don't think a Mueller report, no matter how compelling it is, will ever be able to make up for that gap.
3: So, Timmy, your comments on sort of the politicization does make me sort of wonder, you know, there are things that can be done without the president's support, assuming that there is bipartisan agreement in Congress, assuming that there is lower level executive branch support. You know, we have seen that there's it's possible to get things done sort of over the objection or at least the neglect of the president. I wonder if this isn't an area in which even if it wasn't politicized, even if you had Congress 100% on board, even if you had administration officials recognizing the problem, that If you cannot convince Donald Trump, Mm. if you cannot convince the president, you actually can't meaningfully respond because this occupies such a sensitive, complex area of foreign policy, intelligence, military, self-restraint by the United States, domestic politics, federalism, that actually this is an area in which we could imagine a world in which you remove all of those other issues, everybody else in the world is 100% on board, but you can't convince Donald Trump. I actually wonder if under those conditions, you could do anything that would actually prevent this.
0: Yeah, I think that's a hard and interesting question to ask. I I think you could probably do some things, but they're probably on the order of rearward defense, like you're already at your own 10-yard line and doing your best to hold that line. Like the states could do that, county boards of elections, return to paper ballots, you know, go back to really dumb, uh, no tech processes, you know. Congress could legislate bans on uh, advert. You know, they could have a cooling off period, like a lot of countries do, for 24 or 48 hours, or for four weeks before an election. So, but these are really blunt instruments, and they're blunt instruments that actually impede the the healthy functioning of an electoral. But this is
2: fundamentally a deterrence question, and this is why this is related
1: to Helsinki.
0: But it's also an intelligence question.
2: It is an intelligence question, but it's an intelligence question so that you know what's going on. Right.
1: The intelligence but, function component can serve the deterrence. Yes.
0: Right.
2: But fundamentally, this is about, because you're never going to be able to stop all major cyber operations, particularly influence operations, right? You know, in a world in which we value speech, the Russians are going to be able to put out stuff. Um, this is about, do you convey... Resolve in saying, if you get involved in our elections, we will fuck you Mm -hmm. and we will hurt something that you care about a lot. And that may mean street protests in Moscow, it may mean sanctions, it may mean, you know, all kinds of other things that we can bring about. But if you don't lay off our electoral system, we will come back at you with something that you care about. And that is why when the president of the United States stands up there next to Vladimir Putin and seems meek and seems uh, solicitous solicitous and seems all the other things that we were talking about last week and that everybody else has been talking about for the past two weeks, it profoundly undermines the objective because – Ultimately, the cybersecurity issue here is the modality. And the real question is, are you vulnerable? Are are you in a position where people are not afraid to attack you? Just to go ahead.
0: Well, I just wanted to pause for a moment on the fact that the president held this meeting at all. Yes, it was unserious. It had no concrete results. It only lasted 30 minutes. But the fact is, he was compelled to hold it against his will. He basically doesn't hold National Security Council meetings on anything. And it's meaningful to me. I I don't know whether absent Helsinki, the pressure would have built to do it. But now that the dam has broken, e- even if it's just a crack, I wonder whether it suggests that there's more room for pressure from members of Congress, from governors, from others with a stake in this electoral process, because it's not just the president who gets elected in these Things um, to push for more process, and more process can produce more policy. And I
1: think you're pointing, and just to kind of close this segment out, I think, Tammy, you're pointing out something that strikes me about the statements that we're hearing from Dan Coats, from Christopher Ray, from Mike Pompeo, from basically everyone, even Kirsten Nielsen, who was almost had to be kind of badgered into saying, "Yes, I agree, Russia's interfering." in her elections when she was out at Aspen, these are officials who are going on record and making it very clear, including with Dan Kloetz and the blinking red lights, that says basically their way of signaling, hey, if this happens again, let us be very clear where I was on the record and I was warning the public and I was warning the president and I didn't get any guidance and I didn't get any direction. I mean, not to say that this is about CYA, it's about public warning, but also this has the effect of these officials being very clear for the sake of history that they were aware of this. The agencies that they led were aware of this.
0: Yeah. Ass covering is a very powerful bureaucratic impulse. Absolutely. And it, it can be used for good.
1: It sure can. <laughs> um, well, speaking of powerful impulse, I have nothing for this. <laughs> speaking of covered asses. <laughs> speaking of putting your ass in the seat, I guess. Uh, I love this story so much. The Boston Globe had a terrific scoop.
0: Oh, such a scoop. Such Go a scoop. Glove.
1: That for years, I'm just going to read their lead. Federal air marshals have begun following ordinary U.S. citizens not suspected of a crime or on any terrorist watch list and collecting extensive information about their movements and behavior under a new domestic surveillance program that is drawing criticism from within the agency. The previously undisclosed program called Quiet Skies specifically targets. Yeah, you're talking too loud, Shane. Quiet skies. I called Librarian in the Sky. Specifically, targets travelers who are, quote, not under investigation by any agency and are not in the terrorist screening database, according to a TSA administration bulletin in March. Um, Part of me loves this story because, as we were saying before, the bug is this is so like vintage 2002. When it was, you know, there the are watchers, yeah, watchers everywhere. And, you know, now we're on planes and we have these new layers of security and like the meter maid has been deputized to report any suspicious behavior to the government. There's something sort of very kind of old school surveillance <laughs> and reactionary about this story uh, that I really dig. But also it strikes me and, and I'll, I'll kind of jump all this Whoever wants to respond. I, I, I want to talk about the, the program that I want to talk about some of the legalities around it. But... It strikes me that this seems analogous to the Israeli model for security, which is about observing behaviors. It's about watching things like: is the person sweating? Does the person seem particularly preoccupied with their surroundings? Is this part of their face twitching? What happens when you ask them questions about where they're going? Um, they're, it, it, seems, it seems like this is not completely out of thin air. The these these um, techniques that are being deployed. Let's put the let's put the civil liberties question component aside for a second. But, but I mean, target- is,
0: is out of thin air.
1: Well, the targeting is out of thin air. Yes, well, maybe. they don't it, say
3: how they're selected.
0: Well, this is
1: this, this yeah. one I want to get to. Is this is this really stupid, or is this kind of another iteration of? arguably maybe successful security protocols and procedures we've seen implemented in other countries like Israel,
3: yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that this is this is two thousand and two in the sense that it it doesn't have sort of indication that it's particularly effective. this is this is kind of like the you know, the NYPD mosque surveillance program, right? Huge investment of resources and and really this kind huge of old investment, school. Yes actually, yeah. it's so expensive to have actual people following other people around. This wasn't evidence-based stuffed then, and it turned out not to be effective security. There's no indication it's evidence-based now, either in terms of this actually detecting a threat or this the threat actually existing or this being the most important threat in which to invest resources. And a little bit, you know, this this kind of um, reminds me of last summer when we had this completely bizarre incident out of DHS in which they said no laptops on uh, international flights, then no laptops on domestic flights, where right? there was there was this back and forth about some kind of threat involving laptops or maybe laptop batteries. Maybe this was the piece of intelligence that Donald Trump might have shared with russians in the oval office and and dhs just utterly flubbed just
2: paused it. a moment over the, what you just said
3: right just, 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 <laughs> i know we've all just, forgotten just about like, that whole hang other on thing. like you know like
2: you just said that there may have been a piece of intelligence that the president shared with the russians in the oval office
3: just right. r- neither here nor ca- there carry on <laughs> it was purposes. an age ago yeah <laughs> um you know, so this thing that, that DHS com- completely flubs and sort of right. DHS's job is to communicate information about threats to the public, so that the public can decide how to act and help them in identifying threats. Right? Like you, this is supposed to be this sort of reciprocal thing, and that's the one concrete or, or apparently concrete intelligence threat regarding air travel that we've seen sort of in the past eighteen months. And they completely messed it up. And now it's just kind of gone away and everyone can have their their laptops. And I guess they're not worried about it anymore. And so, you know, now knowing in retrospect that this massive surveillance program is being undertaken simultaneously to these threats sort of popping up and then dropping down, you know, it it does strike me as this is probably wasteful.
0: Yeah. So uh, just to pick up from where you left off, if I were a member of Congress on the relevant oversight committee, my reaction to this story would have been, ooh, their budget is too big. <laughs> right? no. I would have been like, wow, they have enough money to waste it doing that. It is time to shrink. Um, so number one, yeah, this is clearly... Uh, coming up with ideas because we have more money than useful stuff to do, right? And one would wish that they would take that money and put it into good social science research about how we can use behavioral science to suggest who presents a threat. Because you're right, Shane, the Israelis are doing stuff, although they're often accused of racial profiling, they definitely do a lot of work that's rooted in um, behavioral research uh, about how people who may present threats act and how they act differently from other people. So, and this is my second point. If the news had broken that DHS had an odd training program for their intelligence or security personnel that involved having them follow normal people around the airport to see how they behave so that they could learn a baseline, like that I could understand. But what on earth is the value of following random people around to see how they behave? Not for that purpose. Like, what does that get you? I'm so mystified that anyone signed off on this program.
3: I mean, I think that gets at the at an, an embedded assumption and the real question here, which is that it doesn't make any sense if these people are being selected genuinely at random, maybe they aren't being selected genuinely at random. That's and that's the, the part point. that sort of this this story sort of glosses over. It doesn't gloss over, but it, it, it is unable
2: it answer, to, yeah. right,
3: how are they picking who they follow?
2: So a couple thoughts. Um, the first is the idea of layered security in airports is a sound one. That, you know, our experience of security in airports is that you walk into an airport and there's, Nothing going on, and then you go through this security checkpoint, and that's where the security is, and they make you, you know, get rid of all the more than three ounce liquids, and they, you know, search you and backscatter machines and all that. But the, that's the security point, and then there's you're clear after that, and you know, if you somebody hands you a machine gun when you're coming out of the TSA thing, that's fine. No one's going to bother, <laughs> you, right? And that's actually not the way airport security actually works. It's just the optical way it seems to work. In fact, there's security going on and there's a certain amount of monitoring going on kind of at every stage in which – that's just the stage in which you're actively interacting with it. And so that the idea and the the most – the backest end stuff is the air marshals actually on a flight, right, who are armed and who are – uh, and you know, the idea that you have that layered security makes all the sense in the world. The idea that that layered security behaves irrationally uh, does not make all the sense in the world. And so I think the question of what are these people actually doing? What are they looking for? What are, uh, what are the circumstances in which they're following people in order to find out what and do what is what the entire thing
1: turns on? So my next question then that leads to this is, is this legal?
3: I mean, it it does turn on that, right? So, so based on what's presented in this story, yes, probably, right? These are individual TSA agents police officers following people around in public so even though they call it a domestic surveillance program it's not all that different than a beat cop walking the streets and actually this appears to be sort of low tech so to the extent that we've tried to use the beat cop analogy but it's actually you know trackers on cars and and really sophisticated databases no this appears to be actually a, a pretty uh, precise analogy it's just people walking around taking a look and and seeing if there's anything wrong. So sort of on its face, no, there there probably is no legal issue here. This platform security um, uh, is relatively common. Um, the question of how these individuals are being selected potentially does raise a legal question because if they are being selected on the basis of their race, religion, their participation in First Amendment speech. So, right, if you're following people because of what they liked on Facebook, or or because they attended particular rallies or demonstrations, or because then, they have
2: headscarves, right, or because they're males walking with people who have headscarves, right.
1: right?
3: Then, then you do start to get into potentially really thorny legal questions.
1: I think that it's also notable that. Apparently, I mean at least I don't know if these were the sources from the Boston Globe, but they have text messages from TSA agents and people on the inside Mar- I think Air marshals themselves who question whether this is useful, question whether they've gone too far. I mean, it strikes me that if you're somebody who's working in this program day to day and you're thinking, God, guys, this is this is really too much, That's a pretty good indication of whether it has real operational value and is coming too close to align. So of
2: course one of the problems here is that the incident rate is so unbelievably low. Right? So if you're the TSA guy who's searching bags, the incident rate in bags is actually pretty high cuz lots of people have sharp objects in bags that you're not supposed to take on planes. Plus
3: Sebastian Gorka. Right. right. Well, you know, guns, he keeps them busy, right. <laughs> he um, alone is a full-time job for at least two people.
2: And ah. Someone's got the
1: gorka fire.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's like a promotion. That guy (laughs) forgot
0: about his firearm again. I like this. And then there's, you know, the
1: liquid
2: stuff, right? So there's like this long list of things you're not allowed to bring on planes, and people bring them, try to, you know, inadvertently pack them all the time. So there's actually a lot to do. But if you're a back-deployed person somewhere on a plane or in a concourse, whose job is to kind of figure out what causes you anxiety after everyone's already gone through security, the incident rate there is going to be really, really low. And so you're going to spend a huge amount of time to the extent that you're following people, following people who are actually just trying to get on planes. And that's a low hit ratio Problem.
0: Right. And so, if you're the person doing that job, you might start out very sincerely looking for threats. Then you start to wonder why the hell am I, you know, flying all over the country, uh, maybe giving myself deep vein thrombosis when I'd have no sense of whether there's any logic behind what I'm doing. And after that, you would probably get to a point where you would text your colleague and you'd be like, oh, man, I see this weird dude going to Vegas. See you Monday.
1: Right, right, right. (laughs) Just to get through the day.
3: Or even worse, you start engaging in behavior In order to justify your existence and justify your employment, there's a program and there's a budget for a program. And so, you know, a life will find a way. Federal appropriations will Mm. find a way. If there's money, there's someone in the federal government that's willing to spend it on security. And so then you start getting into the issue of overreach, both to the extent that you're investing lots of time and resources in something that doesn't really work. And potentially you are starting to get into the thorny civil liberties areas.
0: Calling Congress.
1: Um, speaking of behavior to justify your existence,
3: <laughs>
0: President
1: nice. Trump said he's willing to meet with Rouhani. Um, the president has said... Did and I just,
0: say I didn't like you? I love you. I love you <laughs> We're
1: friends. We're friends now. It's Donald and friends. Uh, so the president was asked a question in a press conference yesterday uh, with the uh, new Italian prime minister. Yeah? Whether or not he would be willing to meet since he met with Kim Jong-un. And he's in the, the baddies club, whether he would meet with uh, President Rouhani of Iran. And the president said, sure, no conditions. Uh, he'd be happy to do it.
0: Anytime.
1: Anytime. We'll meet. Um, and it strikes me that we've seen this play before, right? You threaten an adversary with overwhelming force. You send nasty tweets, sometimes in all caps. You offer to meet without conditions. You legitimize them by your mere presence and the grace of a meeting and give them anything they want and declare peace and go home. Uh, maybe I'm being too cynical about that. But like, we have seen this play, right? I mean, when Trump was tweeting in all caps at Rouhani three days ago, I was talking to friends. That was only
0: were, three days was ago. It, was it
1: three? Could have been two. But I just want to say who were saying, like, look, we'll have a summit in a week and he'll give him whatever he wants. I just
0: want to say,
2: I also will meet with Rouhani without preconditions. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm happy to do it in Singapore. There's some good restaurants there. And, you know, I I just think we should all get together and talk. Maybe we can, as Trump would say of Putin, get along.
1: I think you have a meeting with Putin already on the books.
2: He has not. I have not no, heard no, from the Kremlin that's, on that's
1: that. One thing at a time. After but, the witch hunt. After the witch hunt. Um, but Tammy, I mean, it, I mean, look, I mean, I, I'm being a little bit facetious in my in my recitation of uh, the the sequence of events here. But is that it seems to me that this would absolutely follow the play with North Korea, which is that you have this ostracized political enemy, you, you know threaten them with overwhelming you know force and destruction, and then you say, sure, I'll meet with you, and then you do, and everything is good because I'm negotiating the deal and we're, we're fine now.
0: Well, so I agree with you that what Trump is doing is following Trump's North Korea playbook, but I think that if that's what he's got in mind, um, it's very unlikely to work for him or for the situation in foreign policy terms in this situation, because Iran is very differently positioned than North Korea. Um, North Korea is internationally isolated. Its economy is cut off from the world. It pulled out of international agreements and refused to engage in good faith negotiations and was pursuing a very aggressive escalation of its nuclear and missile programs. Uh, Iran had a signed multilateral deal with the international community that opened up the the global economy uh, for Iran, for uh, other countries have been making investments in Iran, and the United States pulled out of that agreement. So Iran is not isolated here. The U.S. is the one that's isolated. Uh, Iran's leadership doesn't need a meeting with Donald Trump to establish its legitimacy internationally. It has international legitimacy as the party that's upholding the negotiated agreement. Um, And it's Trump who's lost legitimacy with respect to the Iranian issue. And finally, you know, Kim could use a summit with Donald Trump also domestically at home uh, to deflect attention from the miserable state of human life in North Korea and from the repression of his own regime. Uh, But Domestically, inside Iran, it does not do the president of Iran any good to meet with the U.S. president. Uh, In fact, it will make him vulnerable to more attacks from the right. Finally, there's the fact that the Iranian president is not the head of that theocratic dictatorship. The supreme leader is Ali Khamenei, and that guy is not going to be meeting with Donald Trump. So it's a bad strategy if that is, in fact, what he's trying to do. But I'm also not sure that it is, in fact, what he's trying to do, because I think that he understands that the interaction with the Iranians is not nearly as simple Um, He has already been dealing with this for a year and a half. And um, he has faced a lot of pushback from a lot of people within his administration over his preferred approach to Iran. So I think he understands at a minimum, it's complicated. I think he was looking for uh, a splashy headline. And that's all uh, to just deflect attention from other issues. Uh, And I think he got that. And Part of the reason why I'm so convinced that it was just about a headline and nothing more, that he really has no intention of pursuing this, is that he allowed Secretary of State Pompeo to contradict him almost immediately. Within hours, Pompeo was on TV saying, well, it's, you know... Okay, the president said no preconditions, but let me tell you our three preconditions. And the three preconditions are so fundamental that there's no way the Iranians could meet them. Pompeo said the Iranians have to make fundamental changes in the way they treat their own people, reduce their malign behavior in the region and agree it's worthwhile to enter into a nuclear agreement that actually prevents proliferation. In other words, they have to be ready to negotiate a brand new nuclear deal. So,
2: Tammy, when when the president says no preconditions and then his secretary of state contradicts him um, and creates preconditions, did he give any explanation of what it's like
0: What is no
1: doing this, though? (laughs) Well, first of all, (laughs) I love it. But yeah,
0: Pompeo has been in the business of uh, (laughs) how do they put it in the house? Extend my remarks, right? Revise and Um, revise and extend my remarks. Pompeo has been busy revising and extending the president's remarks on Russia, on NATO, on North Korea. Uh, so it's With not. Those remarks are policy. But revise, revise, r- revise, no
2: preconditions to three preconditions so fundamental that there's no conceivable way you can engage.
0: Oh, Ben, you 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 think this is complicated? It's not complicated. It's easy. The president said no preconditions. What he meant is no preconditions except for our pre-existing policy. Which is that Iran has to change its regime and give up its nuclear weapons. It's not a
1: precondition.
3: So I do sort of wonder, <laughs> even if though it's the nature-
1: pre-inconditional, sorry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's a pre-existing condition. <laughs> Not covered. Very nice. Look, I, I, I so accepting Shane's premise, which I think is the right one in the sense that it at least at this point looks the same as sort of the North Korea rollout. I wonder if one of the fundamental differences here isn't the the nature of Iran hawks versus North Korea hawks. So one of the Mm -hmm. things that we talked about early in this administration was all of the signals that we were about to have an administration that was overwhelmingly aggressive towards Iran, maybe even adopting a policy of regime change. So um, I I think the individual who's promoted uh, at the CIA... um, Probably um, to become the
1: head of the Iran Mission Center. Exactly.
3: Uh, You know, someone who's sort of on the record as being, uh, favoring a a regime change posture. Um, uh, Hiring John Bolton as the national security advisor, right? He's been sort of on this uh, publicity tour for the past five years,
0: and don't forget Rudy Giuliani's relationship with uh, mujahideen Ikhalk.
3: Right. Um and you By have, and you have you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yes. sweet sweet money. Um right so so you have all these people and and I think the concern a year ago was oh god, you know, we're with, we're withdrawing from the Iran deal where we're marching towards war. I I wonder how Like, the fact that Trump just wants a splashy headline, where are we sort of in terms of their policy? Was everybody wrong? And actually, it's far more moderate or it's it's far more consistent with where it's been? Or is Trump really... Does Trump have fundamentally different instincts? And so what we're seeing is actually this push and pull between the instincts of the president to actually engage versus this really, really powerful caucus and contingent within his own administration that, that wants anything but.
0: That's a really interesting question, because I think you're right that that tension has been there. It was there in North Korea also. Um, but it, one thing that's very consistent in the president's approach to foreign affairs is That He's not interested in wars. He doesn't think the United States should be out there fighting any wars. We should just be defending our own borders, our own homeland, whatever. He doesn't even want Article 5 of the NATO treaty. So you're right that his sort of core impulse cuts against the hawks within his own administration. On the other hand, he appointed them. Um, And he has embraced their rhetoric and their approach to Iran, which is strengthening sanctions, squeezing the Iranian economy, threatening third countries that are engaging economically with Iran in order to squeeze their economy further. And so, you know, maybe in that context, you can understand this uh, thoughtless little bid, you know, for a, a summit as a way to create space for more squeezing by saying, look, it's not that I'm driving the country to war. I'd love to talk. I'll talk anytime. But hey, they don't want to talk to me and they're horrible. So let's make them miserable.
3: Look, one other theory and and one that I I usually try and ignore, but the timing in this one is just a little bit too suspicious, and that's that it's been a terrible news week for the president, disastrous summit in Helsinki, Michael Cohen tapes, Manafort going to trial, and all of a sudden the president tweets all capital letters threats, uh, you know, at Iran, is this just an attempt to to change the narrative to put another story to try and knock some of that stuff off the front page?
1: I mean, that is the MO, right? It's it's that's you know, and you and can Occam's have multiple razor. conversations at once, right? Yeah. yeah. Um All right. Before we get on to object lessons, we're gonna play a game. It's predictions time. Oh, man. Predictions, the thing that journalists should learn not Never to engage to in ever, ever Let's again. Speculate wildly. Let's speculate wildly. Um, mm. So, August seems to be the month that a number of people following the Trump Russia probe are thinking that Bob Mueller might actually move to file indictments. We've had some reporting on this in the Post about this big question of whether he will move next onto Americans after having indicted all of these Russians. And the election interference. Um, And there's a thinking, too, that Bob Mueller will not want to indict anyone beyond the Labor Day uh, the holiday because then you're sort of getting into this window where you're near the election and he doesn't want to be accused of interfering in our own elections or or prejudicing or biasing anybody. So with that in mind, if you had to predict, who is Bob Mueller going to indict next? Ben, who do you like? Who's up next? Who's in the who's in the who's guy next? I
2: just this morning did a Reddit AMA in which everybody was asking me that question, and I responded every time I don't do the future, I only do the present. And so I feel like a total (laughs) dork um, now answering this question. I don't believe anything's going to happen in the month of August. Really?
3: Wow. I tend to agree that or... we probably won't see indictments in August. I think if we do, they will be filling in the identities or potentially charges of individuals we already know based on the last indictment. So I think we could see a Roger Stone indictment. I do think that we, we uh, have some chance of finally having the identity of who this congressional candidate was uh, that was in touch uh, trying Trying to get uh, hacked opposition research, the other area, and I think this is uh, overwhelmingly unlikely, but it's sort of the other like blinking light legal question is we now have conflicting testimony. On matters in which a, a number of Trump's inner circle have testified under oath, namely whether or not President Trump, uh, then uh, then candidate Trump, was informed about this Trump Tower meeting beforehand. You have Michael Cohen, uh, you know, saying that there was a meeting that Trump was there. Uh, you know, you have Rudy Giuliani, who you know appears to maybe be confirming some kind of meeting. Maybe Rick Gates was at that meeting. He's cooperating with Mueller, so I do think that all of a sudden, well, I, I think it's unlikely, considering the testimony we've heard, uh, you know, we've, we've heard that Donald Trump Jr. testified, saying that Trump Sr. wasn't informed. Jared Kushner reportedly testified the same. You know, that kind of, if there's a demonstrable perjury issue, I, I do think we may see some movement on that imminently.
0: Hmm. Okay, so I don't have nearly the background or expertise that Ben and and Susan do. So, this is rank speculation on my part. The best best kind. The best, best kind. Okay. So, I'm going to say two things. Number one, I don't think that the proximity to the elections in September will deter Mueller if he's got an indictment he's ready to bring. I think he's just going to forge ahead. You know, he's like one of those horses with blinders on that just keeps going forward. So that's number one. Number two, you know, I think what we've seen so far is that he really is working from the outside in. And if you think about that in indictment terms, there are still plenty of people whose cooperation may have, you know, reached its natural endpoint, but who haven't yet been brought to court, who are in this, this sort of outer ring. And so, you know, I, I think one of the things if I were sitting in Bob Mueller's office, I would want to get this deal with Michael Cohen done partly so that he gets his self off the TV. And um, and so I, I expect that we're going to see that cooperation agreement slash guilty plea or whatever happening over the next weeks. Um, And then, you know, if there are other outer ring people who engaged in improper contacts that are criminal in nature, you might see that. So, you know, if there's a congressional candidate, I would expect to see that before I would expect to see Roger Stone. But we'll
2: see. I just want to say the other thing that I think could – the thing that really could happen in August. Uh, Giuliani was on television on Sunday saying that he expected a decision – imminently in the next week or so on the question of uh, whether the president would sit for an interview. Everybody expects the answer to that question to be no, or at least not without conditions that Mueller wouldn't accept. At that point, Mueller will either make a decision that he doesn't need the interview and move on, or if he does need the interview, he will at that point issue the subpoena. And so... Uh, One possibility that I think could could really could happen in August is that Mueller pulls the trigger on the subpoena. And then you have – it's not an indictment, but you have a major litigation over the question of whether the president uh, can be compelled to appear in front of a grand jury. Uh, And that is a novel question that has never been resolved and it's a, a big deal litigation right in the election season.
1: All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Ben, what's your object? My
2: object is a letter from the Justice Department, which I received last week, but I didn't notice that I'd received. Did until... they
1: serve you a letter?
2: Uh, they did not. They, oh, okay. they sent it to my lawyer, and oh, my lawyer oh. sent it to me, and it got lost in my inbox, and so my lawyer—that <laughs> well, never happened. Totally um, not surprising. My lawyer, like yesterday, was like, "I haven't heard from you about this this amazing letter I sent you." Basically, so I dug it out of my email box. Um, it is a a letter from the Justice Department in response to my FOIA request about the president's uh, speech before a joint session of Congress in which he said that the vast majority, according to Justice Department data, of people who'd been convicted of terrorism and terrorism-related crimes came here from abroad, in order, in, in other words, that they are foreigners. And uh, I didn't believe that when the president said it, and I didn't believe that there was any Justice Department data that supported it. And I didn't believe the Justice Department career officials would have sent fake data to the White House in support of that. And so uh, last year, I asked uh, a couple of our Lawfare uh, student contributors to study the question, and they produced an incredible piece of work, just an analysis of what the data do and don't show. And following that analysis by Lisa Daniels and Nora Ellingson, I FOIA'd the actual correspondence within the department about this stuff. And when the Justice Department didn't produce it, I sued them. And so this letter is the uh, final resolution of the lawsuit. And uh, the relevant part reads... On June 12, 2018, you reached an agreement with the Justice Department to resolve certain issues in dispute in this litigation, whereby the Justice Department would conduct a search for records containing data of one, all individuals convicted of terrorism-related offenses, domestic and international, between 2001 and the date of the search, the initial search, or two, all individuals convicted of all domestic terrorism-related offenses between 2001 and the date of the initial search. No responsive records were located. In other words, there is no data that supports the justice, the president's speech. The president was lying. He was lying about immigrants, and he was lying about the Justice Department.
1: Liar, liar, pants on fire. Way to go, Ben. Yeah, there you go like it. Uh, Tam, you don't have an object.
0: So my object is uh, a little article in uh, The Atlantic by Natasha Bertrand that came out uh, yesterday. Um, And I found it incredibly disturbing reading. And we didn't have a chance to talk about it because there's so much going on. But I did want to commend it to all of you. It's headlined, How Russia Persecutes Its Dissidents Using U.S. Courts. And it's an article uh, reporting in detail about how the Department of Homeland Security is using Interpol red notices requested by Russia uh, as grounds in U.S. courts for detention and removal of people who have come to the United States as asylees fleeing Russian persecution (laughs) Um, And the Russians uh, say, well, you know, they've committed crimes in Russia, no matter how politically motivated those charges may be. Uh, Interpol issues a red notice. And then DHS treats the red notice as though it's actual evidence um, and not a political smear. Uh, And people are being detained for very long periods under this policy. It's kind of shocking to learn that our government is heedlessly following this manipulative process by the Russian government and not doing what it should be doing, which is protecting vulnerable people. Uh, Some of those wrapped up in this, by the way, are U.S. citizens, uh, not just uh, foreign nationals who are here having requested or received asylum. So Natasha Bertrand in The Atlantic, uh, commend it all to you. Great.
1: Susan?
3: I have an object lesson. And it is an article in GQ entitled 21.0 fresh podcast recommendations fresh. from all your favorite podcasters in uh, specifically the recommendation by one Mike Pesca, uh, podcasting
2: God mm-hmm. indeed
3: um, who recommends little old us Yay. As a, Yay. thank you uh, he says that we are way in demand experts who break news in their own domains and then come together for the most informative and necessary discussion of the week they bring out the best in one another with their chemistry and rigor and leave listeners armed to of the threat matrix that is 2018 then they have a scotch
0: yes actually we have a scotch while (laughs) come be our guest Mike Mike
1: Mike, you can come on anytime
3: anytime thank you for the the you left out the part
1: about the dashing moderator
3: oh (laughs) yeah devastatingly (laughs) handsome
1: (laughs) devastatingly distractingly (laughs) handsome
3: I just have to
0: say like it's so cool to be in GQ at all. It's awesome. And it
1: is. It's very cool. Oh, it I'm not dressed for it. They don't even know
0: about your sock game, Shane. They, they don't even
1: know about my your sock, sock game? game. Seriously. You're Brought be a to you by Nice guy. Laundry. This week's podcast is brought to you by Nice Laundry. <laughs> by the way, Nice Laundry, if you're listening, I do wear your socks and your underwear so I could actually attest to them.
3: Send Shane underwear. <laughs> Rational oh, no.
1: Security is brought to you this week by Mike Pescal. By Mike Jest. <laughs> <Gist. laughs> That's uh, a super great list to be on, too. And we're and, uh, honored to be in the company of other such great podcasts. Do check out that list. Um, now that you're done with this podcast, you can go download some more. Let's reach the end of, an, end of another week, you guys. It's been real. Rational Security is, of course, brought to you by Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare website which you should be going to all the time. It's enjoying its new home over there. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download our podcast from Apple or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher, please remember to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Dan Coates and the Covered Asses
0: excellent oh nice I was going to say
1: blinking red covered asses but then it's like is the red it's light too
0: much covered
1: yeah. <laughs> blinking red it's in a, the covered it's
0: ass sort of a hat on a hatch <laughs>
1: it's good it's a little too much unlike Sophia Yan who is just right on behalf of my friends Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes and Tamara Kaufman-Wittes I'm Shane Harris we'll talk to you next week bye bye